Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, episode 25, brought to you by acmescience.com. My guest on today's episode is David Henderson, professor at Cornell University and member of the Algebra Project. Together, we discuss mathematics education, what he means by revitalizing our meaning of proof, and just what a cohort is. Here we go. With me on the phone today for Strongly Connected Components, I have Professor David Henderson from Cornell University, as well as a team member at the Algebra Project. Hello, Professor. Hi. Hello. Now, I want to give uh, the listeners a little bit of background as to why I am uh, doing this interview specifically. I, I interviewed your wife, Dinah Taimanya, a couple of weeks ago uh, for the show, and very soon after I got off the phone with her, I received an email suggesting that I talk to you because of a slight disagreement that you had with something she said, specifically about the line, one should do math instead of talking about it. And so I was wondering if you could give a little bit of background as to why you don't necessarily agree with that statement. Yeah, well, it, it, it depends on what the meaning of the words is. You know, it has a little different meaning from her background. I, I think it's very important for students to be able to talk mathematics, which is a little bit different than talking about mathematics. But I would like to see students uh, talking to each other, defending their solutions, saying why they solve something the way they did or why they see something in the way they do. Uh, that, that kind of talk, which would in, I would include in that um, proofs giving a convincing communication that answers why. And I think students at all levels can do that. That kind of mathematical talk that I think is very important. It's not really contradicting what uh, Dinah said, because she was talking about talking about mathematics instead of mathematical talk. Yeah, I, I, I don't think too many people will disagree with the idea that it's very important for students to be able to talk mathematics and to be able to defend their solutions, be able to defend proofs or talk proofs, as you said. Now, uh, what specifically do you feel is the direct importance of this? I mean, what does that ability to talk bring to students that just being able to, say, do an algorithm that gives them the answer every time would not give them? Oh, it, it gives them an understanding. It them to experience mathematics as being a part of human discourse, a, a human thing. You know, for instance, I think I agree with you that most people believe that such stuff is important, but, but I find that students, for instance, students that come to Cornell have a hard time with mathematical talk. And that if I ask them, for instance, an exercise I often give to freshmen is for them to choose some important, what they think is an important topic or an important notion that they've uh, learned and to explain it to somebody else. Explain it to somebody else that's not in the class, you know, that hasn't been, say it's in calculus, that doesn't know calculus. 
And they have a hard time doing that because they haven't had practice in doing it. They get better practice. In your vidas, I was just looking through things on your website, you have a, a paragraph there about educational mathematics where it's specifically you write about reconceptualizing mathematics and enlivening our conception of what proof is and making proof central at all levels of mathematical teaching. When you say in, enlivening our conception of what proof is, I, I don't quite have a full grasp on what you mean by that statement. I mean by defining proof as a convincing communication that answers why. Too often we think of proofs as some kind of a formal thing that often lacks meaning for students. But sometimes that can be part of what I call a proof. But to me, a proof is a convincing communication that answers why. So that students at all levels should be able to talk about why they see something as true, give some evidence for it, and be able to com communicate in a convincing way to somebody else and not have the answer to the why question be because the teacher said so. That, that does tend to be a rather big issue. Right. So I, I really want to push that if mathematics is a human subject, which I think it is, people that are learning mathematics should be able to know why, have their own way of seeing why things are true. There's sometimes when we have to memorize things and just accept things from some authority, but we want to minimize such things and, and we sh should have some good reason to accept the authority. But it's better if we have our own reasons. We can see why things are true. Oh, no, I definitely, I definitely agree with that. I, that was one of the things that really struck me when I took my first class in a proof was actually really developing a stronger basis for belief why I've been doing these things for so long. Right, right. And what I'm saying is that why, why isn't it possible to be, start talking about that earlier? not have such a thing as a first course in proof. And when people put a first course in proof, they're thinking of proof in a very formal sense. And there's importance for that. But we can be doing communication communications that answer why at all levels. First graders. Okay, yeah. I, when, when you mentioned something like first graders, how do you see uh, bringing in, I mean, your much broader idea of proof, not just formal proof, into an elementary school classroom? Yeah, sure. Just keep asking the students, you know, why is that true? Why do you do it that way? And, and not accepting, you know, because the teacher said so. And, and if things are presented with experiential meaning, then the students can answer that if they're encouraged and given some practice. You are listening to Strongly Connected Components. My guest on today's episode is David Henderson, professor at Cornell University and member of the Algebra Project. Now, I know that I've popped in many times now to let everyone know about the Live Math Maths podcast recording, but it's still coming up on November 17th, and I have one last promo advertisement to toss into Strongly Connected Components to let you know more about this show. So just listen to this. Are you finding new mathematics hard to come by? Has mathematics just become incomprehensible to you? Or has it started to put you to sleep? Oh, hello. My name is Samuel Hansen. And if you suffer from any of these problems, do I have a solution for you? I'm the co-creator of a revolutionary mathematical product called the Math Maths Podcast. 
It has been said that after you listen to this podcast, not only will your mathematical abilities increase fivefold, all of your friends will also become 1,000% more aware of what's going on in the mathematical world, and your romantic partner will find you even more attractive than they already do. And my co-creator, Peter Rowlett, and I are about to bring this wonderful mathematical experience to the masses, all at the low, low price of free. This is only happening once at the University of Greenwich, Queen Anne 180, November 17th at 1 p.m. And you definitely do not want to miss this. So make sure that you are there, since I guarantee that this will change your life. See you there. The opinions expressed during this advertisement are solely those of Samuel Hansen. The Math Mass podcast does not condone, guarantee, or appreciate any of the opinions expressed by Samuel Hansen during this advertisement or at any other time. As a matter of fact, it would be better if everyone would just stop listening to him. So, if you are anywhere near Greenwich, as a matter of fact, anywhere in England, no scratch that, UK or Western Europe, I fully expect to see you November 17th, 1 p.m., University of Greenwich, Queen Anne 180. Really, I would love to see you there. I'd love to have some fans of the show or at least listeners to the show. If you're not fans, please let me know why not. But generally, I just really hope that people can come and enjoy watching me talk in front of them instead of through their headphones. Now, let's get back to this much more interesting and important interview with David Henderson from Cornell University. Now, a bit earlier you mentioned something about the difference in cultures and how that brings different meanings to the statements we say. What sort of cultural differences have you seen in mathematics and mathematical communication, given that you've worked literally throughout the world. I, I have marked down here, you've worked at Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton, Moscow, Warsaw, the West Bank, and in Latvia. So you, you have a nice broad picture of the it, way people... South Africa. You, you love South Africa. Okay, and South Africa. So uh, <laughs> I, what sort of differences has that allowed you to see between the people, uh, the concepts that people have about mathematics and the way that they talk about it? Well, let's see. There's a lot. One thing is that uh, Eastern Europe has had a much stronger tradition in geometry than the than the, the West. So the geometry almost disappeared from collegiate level in North America, but it, it it was always strong in high school and collegiate level in Eastern Europe. Part of that comes that with this notion of proof. In high school, when I was going through high school, and it's still a lot of to a lot of extent this way that proof is considered to be only happening in the geometry course, where there were what in North America we call two-column proofs. That's just a function of North America. It, the Europeans don't know what two-column proofs are. And, and they have a much broader notion of proof that includes geometric arguments. So I, I think that the tying geometry and only geometry to formal proofs is what pretty much killed geometry in North America for quite a long while. When I was going to school, and this is all the way from high school through college through the university graduate school, there was only one course in geometry that it was ever possible for me to take. 
that was the 10th grade geometry course in high school. There was no geometry courses in the college and the university. Wow. <laughs> and, and that was true. That was common. It's true at Cornell when I first came to Cornell 43 years ago, 44 years ago now, I guess. There was only one undergraduate geometry course, and it was just for students who were going to become teachers. Now we have eight undergraduate geometry courses. Well, that's, that's definitely a bit of a change. It's now changed, yeah. So, so there's a... Uh, and then, of course, there are always just language differences. And one of the language differences came up in, in your interview with uh, my wife. So, because in Latvia, when they say straight angle, they mean the same thing as we mean when we say perpendicular. So that that's, but when we say straight angle, we usually mean something that, like a straight line instead of perpendicular. The differences in language can, can make, it, make it a difference. But when we're drawing pictures, that kind of difference disappears. <laughs> they, they do mention that mathematics is the one universal language in many ways. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think that people that say that are... Uh, thinking in terms of formal equations. Yeah, true. And, and I don't think that's all of mathematics. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's a... I think I disagree with it, with that. I don't believe it's a universal language. And I, only, I guess I don't even think mathematics is a language. You know, algebra is. You know, sort of algebraic expressions are. And, and I think that's the sense in which people are meaning that. But, you know, but, but expressing the meaning uh, in mathematics is something that takes ordinary language. Now, you, you talked to a bit about geometry and the, the differences in which different areas of the world have been dealing with it. Now, one thing that you have been doing has been writing a book uh, called Experiencing Geometry. It's up to its third expanded and revised edition, if I have that correct. Yes, and, and, and my wife is a co-author. Yes. I, I was I was wondering. It's it's called experiencing geometry. I'm wondering what sort of because I haven't had a chance to say go out buy it and leaf through it for this interview. Uh, what the difference between it and other geometry books would be, given your different beliefs in education. Well, ways, one was what I was talking about earlier that particularly in North America. There is this tradition in geometry to base geometry on axioms and a, as a formal axiom system, and I don't do that. So in our book, we start off, the question we start off the very first is, what is straight? What do we mean when we say a line is straight? You know, how, how do we produce a straight line, and how do we check that a line is straight if somebody gives us one that they say is straight? Those are questions that are norm, normally don't come up in a geometry course, and we don't accept you know, you use a straight edge to draw a straight line because it just begs the question, you know, how do you know the straight edge is straight? <laughs> I think that's, that's a good place to see that there's different. But straight has meaning, and straight has meaning, experiential meaning to little kids. They know the difference between straight lines and, and curved lines. and So that's a difference. And don't try to to make it an axiomatic system. In 2005, you joined the core curriculum development team for the Algebra Projects. Now, I doubt many people listening to this do know what the Algebra Project is, but from everything I've seen, they probably should. So if you could just explain a bit about what this project is and what it's trying to do. So the Algebra Project was started at its origins back in the 1980s by uh, Bob Moses, who was a leader of the, of the voting rights movement in Mississippi back in the 60s. 
And in the 80s, when he was observing his kids in school, seeing that they were having trouble with algebra and that in all, a lot of their classmates were having trouble with algebra, and noticing that that sort of fluency in high school mathematics and in algebra is now crucial for being successful in many, many, many occupations now. I mean, it's a block, it's a um, hurdle that people have to go into in order to be able to enter fully into the uh, our culture. So the algebra, he set about trying to figure out ways of helping students, and particularly what he's interested in, interested in students at the bottom. So the, the algebra project is trying to raise the floor as opposed to removing the achievement gap. You hear a lot of people talk about the achievement gap between uh, disadvantaged students and more advantaged students, the achievement gap. But instead, think about raising the floor that devising a, a teaching program and a curriculum that makes it possible for all students to gain an understanding of mathematics. And so in that sense, raising the floor. Now, you are uh, part of a project called R&D, the Development of Student Cohorts for the Enhancement of Mathematical Literacy in Underserved Populations, which is quite a ma mouthful of a name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was wondering if you could uh, let people know what that work uh, is outside of the, the wonderful language used to describe it. Yeah, yeah. So that, that, was, a, that was sort of language necessary for the NSF. Yeah. Grant the NSF data. So it, it's the algebra project. And so exactly like the title says, so the goals are to have students all, all students, and particularly we're focusing on students that are in the bottom quarter or about a third of, of the high schools. All students can be successful in mathematics if they can learn to be confident in their abilities of mathematics. And of course, some people have more ability than others, but, but still, everybody can be confident and can do thinking about mathematics, and that they can be successful in terms of passing the exams that are necessary in order to graduate from high school, and then entering college without having to take remedial mathematics to make it to college. And this is a big problem in this country. So roughly half of the students that graduate from high school, go on to four-year colleges, are taking high school mathematics when they get to college. So in other words, they're repeating stuff that supposedly they already learned. But they didn't. It's really an indictment of our American high school mathematics. Yeah, no, I, I've taught a couple of those courses, actually, and it, it is, it's quite uh, shocking how little some of the students coming in actually seem to know about mathematics when they get there. Right, right, right. And these are students that have graduated from high school. Yes. And have taken three or four years of math in high school. So the one word in the title of the project you're you're working with on the Algebra Project is, is the term cohorts. Now, I was wondering if that actually means you're developing cohorts that work together, or are you just referring to cohorts as the groups of people? No, actually, yes, as cohorts that work together. So one of the things that the Algebra Project has found that's, that really helps this problem is to have a group of students that start in ninth grade and agree to stay together for the four years of high school, supporting each other. It's one way of getting around the peer pressure, because there's a lot of peer pressure among teenagers to that it's cool to not be good at mathematics and not cool to be good at mathematics. 
like it's also even true for adults. It's very common to hear adults say, oh, I'm no good at mathematics. But an adult would never say, I'm no good at reading. People are comfortable saying they're no good at mathematics. And in some teenage cultures, it's very strong that, it's, that, that there's peer pressure not to be good at mathematics. So part of the cohort thing is to, to counteract that pressure. And also to have a group of students that are getting uh, used to and comfortable talking to each other about mathematics, talking mathematics with each other. That, that seems to be helpful. So that, that's, that's what the cohort is. Well, I want to thank you so much for uh, taking the time out of your day to be on the show, Professor Henderson. Okay, thanks for calling. And that is all the time that we have for another episode of Strongly Connected Components. If you have any feedback or you just want to say, suggest a guest for the show. I love to get suggestions and I try to get all the people that are suggested to me. Just send me an email, samuel at acmescience.com. AcmeScience.com is also where you can find more information about today's guest, link to his website where you can find out even more information about him than what he told you here today during the interview. Also, there'll be the video that goes along with that math math promo that I played. It shows me in my office, just where I sit when I record this. So make sure you head on over to AcmeScience.com. The intro music was from Hard and Firm. The song is Pie from their album Horses and Grasses. And the outro and interstitial music is SP12. You can find them over at opsound.org. This podcast is, as always, a Creative Commons attribution share-alike licensed podcast. So make a bunch of copies. Give it to your friends. Make them listen. I would really love more people to listen. And on that vein... Go to iTunes, leave us a review. It makes us more visible to anyone who likes math and searches for math podcasts on iTunes. I don't think that I have anything else to really ask you to do. Uh, So as long as you do all those things that I suggested that you do, and if you live anywhere in Western Europe, you come to the live math maths recording, then I think we're all square. Have a great week, and make sure you listen to the next Strongly Connected Components.